I'm all about the good vibes, the good vibes. We better have a good time, a good time. Leave my problems all behind, all behind. We living out the good life, the good life, yeah. I ain't gotta worry about a thing. Podcast. I got another very special guest in the building tonight. My man, 50 Grand, he has helped us such a long way with our battle with Christian as he knows the battle himself with his own person, with his own personal family, with his daughter. Oh my gosh, yo, it's such an honor and pleasure to have a man himself, former Houston Texan, former Cincinnati Bengal, NFL former, my man, the one and only Devin Still is in the building, y'all. Give it up, give it up. What's up, boy? What's going on, man? Chilling, man. How you been? I've been doing good. I've been do. I've been doing all right based on the circumstance. I'm not even going to say I've been doing good. This has been some crazy times. But I've been making the best of the situation. That's what's up, man. Yeah, man. Like everybody has been going through, you know, just uh, from top to bottom. This this year has been super, super crazy. How's the yeah. family been on on your end? Yeah, I mean, we've been doing good. Um, Leah's doing good. The newborn's doing good. So as long as everybody's healthy, I, I can't really complain about life. That's what's up, man. Yeah, man. So let's let's jump into it, man. Like this this year has been been super crazy. You are now a motivational speaker, former NFL player. Um, your daughter, you know, battled cancer and is now cancer free. We can officially say that, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, she cancer free. Yep. We can officially say there we go, cancer free. So I want to take everybody back to the very, very beginning. I want to give them, you know, Devin Still version number one before, you know, uh, the NFL, before all of that. So tell the people, you know, where you from and how you got started in football and in your career. Yeah, I'm from, uh, I was born in Camden, New Jersey, but I moved to Wilmington, Delaware when I was around four years old. And I, uh, I started playing football when I was 13, basically as a way to just keep myself busy and out the streets because I was doing a lot of, you know, crazy stuff. Um, early on in my childhood because I was going through a lot with my parents getting divorced and I was acting out a lot just I believe for a cry for help you know uh letting people know that I was in pain but not really knowing how to you know vocalize that so I was getting suspended from school um breaking into houses I was doing a lot of crazy stuff but when I was 13 I got introduced to football and it gave me structure to my life um, it wasn't something I wanted to do professionally. It was just something I was doing to keep myself occupied. I actually wanted to go to the NBA. Mm. But as I got older, I started getting bigger, and my body stopped looking like a basketball player. <laughs> right. and started looking like a football player. And then right. um, about my junior year in high school, scholarships just started rolling in, and I finally saw that I really had a chance to make it out of the environment I was growing up in. Wow, wow. So now I read your book. Um, in, in the book, you, I believe that you said that you weren't even really that good at football first. Was that true? Nah, I suck. Man, I was <laughs> terrible. I first started, I first started playing football and I, and I said 13 because I don't really count when I initially started playing. Yeah. I, I initially started playing when I was like in fifth grade. Um, and I wasn't able to play that much because I was over the weight limit. Like I was always big, you know, from my age group and. Uh, if you're over the weight limit, they won't allow you to play in a game. So the most I did was practice. And the first time I got on the practice field, I got ran over. The air got knocked out of me. Mm-hmm. And I was over football at that point. But my dad, you know, made me go back out there and continue to play. And then when I got to the eighth grade, I, I tried to play football again. Um, of course, I played it on the street, but organized football. And I just fell in love with it. Yeah. And, and then, like, you know, uh, going further into the book, I know you, you just mentioned that you were, you know, having some troubles and, you know, a cry for help and everything. What was the, the you know, the, the point of all that? Was it because in your book you said that your, your parents had divorced at a certain age, right? Yeah, my parents got divorced when I was in third grade, and it completely – it shook my life up. You know, one day you think that everything's good with your family and that you're in a good household, and the next day 
it's only one parent in our household. Right. That completely threw me off guard. And I know a lot of people who come from, you know, broken homes understand what I mean by like, the kids are always taken by surprise. Like mm -hmm. they rarely do the parents let you know the turmoil that they're going through. So you think everything's good and then it, it switches up. So I just started, I started getting into a lot of trouble. I didn't really know what to do. I didn't know how to express what I was going through. And the best way I thought to do that was, you know, getting in fights and just, you know, being in the streets. Mm. So what do you say to like, you know, um, you know, young men that are in, that are maybe in that situation right now that may not really truly understand and you being married now, you know, you understand and you have been through, you know, some, some other experiences in life. What type of advice can you give them now? Do you, you know, ask, you know, tell them to find that outlet? Yeah. Well, first I was just tell the parents to be more transparent, you know, <laughs> with the kids so that they're, they're not caught off guard. Right. Um, but for the kids who are actually go through it, it's just realizing that you're not the only person that's going through it. There's a lot of families out there. There's a lot of kids out there that are having to navigate through broken homes. I speak with Leah about that all the time. I understand what she's going through with me not being with her mom, but me just sitting down and talking to her about it allows her to handle it in an easier way. I felt like, you know, when my parents were going through what they were going through, it was like, all right, we need to figure out what's going on with our lives. And then y'all kids figure it out on your own. <laughs> Nobody really sat me down and talked about what I was going through or asked me uh, what I was experiencing emotionally. And I, I guess that happens to a lot of people, especially in uh, black families. So just being able to be open with each other and really communicate the emotions as your experiences is key to making it through that type of obstacle. Yeah, I think like, you know, just being transparent, period, with your kids is like always the way to go because then, like you said, they're not caught off guard, you know, for, for their mental state, you know, it's, it's very important that they, you know, they stay locked in and not like veer off, you know, the, the wrong direction because they're thinking, like you said, one day everything is good and then everything else is just totally different, right? And, you know, and further along, along you know, down the road, you, you get into Penn State, right? And then, you know, tell us about your experience in there because, you know, some things flipped on you, you know, injuries and things of that nature. What was, what was that like? Because I could, I could, I couldn't imagine what you was going through at that time. Yeah. Penn State, uh, it was a lot of good and bad moments at Penn yeah. State. Um, the good moments, of course, was just being able to see outside my current environment. You know, yeah. sometimes when you grow up in the inner city, you grow up in the hood, you think that's all that life has to offer because that's all that you really see, mm -hmm. uh, but football gave me the opportunity to really take those blinders off and it allowed me to see the world for what it was. So just being on that campus, let me know that the opportunity is out there to be great in this world. The opportunity to be successful was there, but my first two years got off to a, a really bad start because um, during my freshman training camp, I ended up tearing my ACL, my MCL during um, training a training camp practice. Mm -hmm. and it completely devastated me because I thought I was going to play as a true freshman that year. Um, you know, I was getting all these good remarks in the newspaper from our uh, coach Paterno, and he rarely talked about, you know, freshmen uh, mm -hmm. to the media. So for him to talk about me, it was pretty big. And then to have that snatched away in the blink of an eye, it just it messed me up mentally. Yeah. Um, and I remember, you know, before that play, I had prayed on the sideline. I don't even know why. But before I even went out there, I, I broke my leg when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And I used to always, I broke my leg my freshman year of high school. I used to always wear a knee brace uh, to football practice or playing the games, even when I was playing basketball, because I just didn't trust my knee uh, mm -hmm. that whole time. But when I got to Penn State, I was like, all right, I'm going to start over with a clean slate and I'm not going to wear a brace anymore. Mm -hmm. So that whole training camp, I wasn't wearing a brace. But this particular day, as I was you know, walking out to practice, I looked at my locker and my brace was sitting right there. Mm. And it was like something was telling me to put the brace on, but I was like, nah, I'm, I haven't worn it this whole time I've been at Penn State, I'm not about to put it on. Mm. And towards the end of practice, I dropped down and I started to pray. And I asked God just to protect me because I knew, you know, practice was almost over. And I always would say the same prayer, just asking God to protect me and my teammates as we go through practice or we go through a game. Mm. Um, and then I went in that play and I, I blew out my knee and I remember being inside the uh, the training room and I was just crying and I was mad at God asking, how can you allow this to happen to me? Like, I just prayed for you to protect me and then you just stripped away my whole freshman year from me. So I, I was messed up 
But in that same moment, I realized that, you know, you shouldn't question God like that. Yeah. Um, and I made a promise that I wasn't going to question him ever again, wow. um, especially when it came to those type of injuries. But I felt like he was testing me mm-hmm. because the following year, around the same time, I broke my leg. Because wow. I, I, I took a whole year of rehab to get back out on the football field. The following year, I got back um, just in time for training camp. And then during one of our scrimmages, one of our players got thrown into my leg and snapped my leg in half. And um, I ended up having to get a plate and 10 screws in it. And they told me my season was over again. So I was I was completely crushed. That mm-hmm. second year, I, I was crushed. Like, I didn't want to be at Penn State no more. I didn't want to do anything. You didn't even want to play football no more. No, I didn't think I was going to be capable of doing it. Because when I blew out my knee, everybody was telling me that players don't usually bounce back from ACL, MCL tears. So, um, so was, to have... Yeah, so what was the mo- what was the motivation for you to get to get back? Um, well, There was one thing. There was one thing in particular. Uh, when, like I said, that second year of me having to go through rehab again, I was like... I was all over the place. I was going through a lot of stuff mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I almost wanted to go back to Delaware and, and not continue at Penn State. But then I ended up going home um, one weekend and uh, I had went to a party. Mind you, I had I promised my dad I wouldn't go to no more parties in Delaware because right before mm-hmm. I went to Penn State, um, I went to a party and there was a shooting mm-hmm. and we got pulled over. and. The, there was a gun in the car and the gun was hot. Like it just was been fired, had been fired and the cops arrested everybody in the car except for me and said, I saw you on the front page of the paper. And I know that you have a chance to make it out of here and I'm not going to ruin that for wow. you. Um, so just go home and, you know, just stay out of trouble. Mm-hmm. So my dad made me promise when that happened, I wouldn't go to no more parties. But for some reason, I let my friends talk me into, you know, going to this party when I came back home. And I ended up watching somebody get shot mm-hmm. in the head and they died. And it was in that moment that I realized that I had to, you know, fight through whatever pain um, that I was going through, both, you know, emotionally and physically while I was at Penn State, because I had to find a way for me to take my family out of the environment that uh, I grew up in. Yeah. You know, it was crazy. I've been having this conversation, you know, about, you know, about social injustice and stuff. And this kind of ties into a little bit of what you were saying mm-hmm. and like, not the social injustice part, but you know, what I'm about to say, it's like as black men, our first image of life that we can actually remember is broken down homes, the hood, dirty streets. You know what I'm saying? We looking at, you know, bodegas and corner stores and like, you know, crackheads or whatever shootings and stuff like that as as black people. And then on, on the other side, you got a lot of white people that the majority of them, they grow up in the suburbs and their image and what they see is, you know, clean streets and, you know, everything is peaceful. And, you know, the just it's just completely opposite from what we see. Mm-hmm. And that whole that whole terminology of you know, we're starting on the one yard line where everybody else is starting on the 50, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's like, you know, what's your take on how it is that on how we we get the chance to start on where we start. And, 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 And if you can speak a little bit about how, you know, important it is for, you know, black people to have what we call in Down syndrome, we call it early intervention or in special needs, we call it early intervention to for young black people to actually see things differently at an early age so that they at least know that they have a fighting chance. Yeah, I think it, it all goes to, cause like you said, we do, you start on the one yard line, you see a lot of people, you know, starting on the 50, not to say that they don't have their own issues that, you know, they gotta go through with their life. But I feel like we have a lot of baggage that we have to, you know, carry because, uh, think it's been passed down generation to generation. Everybody gets upset talking about slavery was 400 years ago, but they don't understand how much pain right. passed down, you know, right. each generation that came after that. And we all carry that burden of our ancestors. Just like I'm pretty sure a lot of people who are not black, who are not African-American have been through things in the past and they can't, they haven't found a way to let it go yet. Right. right? And it can be something minor. It's nothing like 400 years of slavery. 
Right. So, of course, that gets passed down, this generational trauma. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's important for people to really uh, open their eyes to the full world, not just everything they're going through. So uh, the ways that I, I used to do it, even by listening to music, the type of music that I was consuming, you know, I didn't grow up with, with a lot of money, but every birthday, every time there was something important, my parents would always buy me a Tupac CD. Mm. And I would like to listen to Tupac all the time because I was trying to understand what was going on in my environment. And I felt like he was speaking to me in a way where I understood like, yeah, this is where I'm coming from, but this is, doesn't have to be where I end up. Like that rose that grew from the concrete. Mm -hmm. So I think just the type of music that you consume, the books that you read, the podcasts um, that you consume like this one, the, the shows you watch, the movies you watch, you want to be able to watch things that show you things outside of your current environment, right? So that they, you can see that there is more to offer out there in the world so that you can strive for more. But if you just keep consuming the things that you already see in your life, that's, you think there's nothing worth fighting for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I was, I was fortunate enough to, <clears throat> you know, we were, I was born in North New Jersey, so North Jersey. And, right. you know, when I, was, uh, when I was a kid, my family moved down to Willemboro and but we traveled always back and forth because we went to church up there our family was up there a lot you know but what i got i got the chance to like kind of get out a little bit early and kind of see that there's something different on the other side here you know right. and it's like i think it takes people like yourself people like myself to use our platforms more to speak to the youth and give them you know the the knowledge that they need so that they can actually see like look yo this can actually happen we can you can really make it out of this you don't necessarily have to stay here you know and many times we we get trapped inside of our mind especially when bad things arise right so we're bad things are coming at us tragedy is coming at us and we stay trapped in our mind your daughter leah you guys went through, you know, and I, I, I can attest because we both went through the same situation with our children and she was diagnosed with cancer and, you know, while you were in, in the NFL. So take us through the story of, you know, with Leah and how you just didn't stay trapped in the mind of, you know, just staying there and, and didn't take no for an answer. Yeah. So how Leah got diagnosed, it, it was crazy because, uh, that whole year just felt like my life was falling apart. Um, it was my second year in the NFL. Mm -hmm. I had, you know, just dislocated my elbow playing against the Lions. Um, I had rehab for five weeks to make it back from that. Mm -hmm. And then five weeks later, I ended up blowing out my back against the Steelers and I had to get seasoned in the back surgery. And then a week after that, I flew back home to Delaware to be with my family for the mm -hmm. off season. And I ended up getting rushed to the hospital um, because I couldn't breathe. Like I was having chest pains. I didn't know what was going on. I thought it was because I had my back brace for my surgery on too tight. Uh, but then they ended up running some EKGs on me and they found out I had multiple blood clots in my lungs. And if I didn't make it there when I did, then I probably would have died. And then I started going to church because it just felt like something was missing from my life. Like I just felt like I had it all in people's eyes. Like I had the money. I had the lifestyle, I had the career, I was living the American dream, but it was just something missing. Like there was a void in my life. So I started to go back to church with my wife and we ended up making a decision to get baptized. And um, it was what, two months after getting baptized, I had flew back home from mini camp to take Leah to her dance recital because during the off season, I put her into dance classes. And I flew back home because I wanted to be there in the crowd to support her because I knew how important that was when I was playing ball growing up, being able to look into the crowd and see my parents. That motivated me to make it to the NFL. So I wanted to be able to make sure that she looked out into that crowd and saw her dad uh, cheering her on. But we never made it to the, the dance recital because Leah started to feel sick early that morning when she was out to eat with her grandmother. And I went to go pick her up to take her to the emergency room across the street to find out what was going on because I thought it was like an ear infection or something because she was running a fever. I didn't think it was anything serious. So they ran a couple of tests on her. Um, and I remember we were sitting in the room and a doctor had touched her hip and she jumped from the doctor. And 
the doctor thought that she may have had um, some type of infection in her hip that she said sometimes can happen to kids who are growing too fast. And since I'm not the smallest guy in the room, right. I figured my daughter might be growing too fast for her age. Yeah. So they sent us to another hospital down the street. They ran some more tests on her and then uh, they ended up coming out telling us that they found a tumor in her stomach and it was stage four neuroblastoma. Wow. Wow. Now, what was the first, your first reaction when you, when you heard those words that, you know, she was diagnosed with that? Um, it, it's crazy because I, I've been through a lot of injuries in my life, right? So I understand the way these tests go, the MRIs, the CAT scans and the x-rays. So when they had initially found a mass in her stomach and they didn't know what it was when they was doing an ultrasound, they took her upstairs to give her a CAT scan. And I know CAT scans only take like 45 minutes. MRIs only take like 45 minutes. And we was up there for like two hours. Wow. And I, I looked at her mom. I woke her up. I said, man, they're going to come out here and say that Leah got cancer. Because before they took up there, they told us it could be, you know, 10 different things. And the last thing they said was cancer. And I was like, it's probably not cancer. My daughter don't have cancer. And y'all put it on the last thing on the list. So if it was that great of a chance of it being cancer, I'm pretty sure you would have, you know, named it in the top three. Yeah. But then when it was taking like two hours, I was like, okay, they yeah. about to come out here and say that she got cancer. The yeah. doctor came out there and she said it. And it it's just like it took the life out of me mm. initially. Um, mm. But the only thing that brought me back was she, the doctor was about to go to the, the waiting room and tell uh, my dad and tell Leah's grandmother what had they just found. And I stopped her and I'm like, nah, um, if they're gonna hear something like this, it gotta be from somebody they love and care about. Like somebody they ain't just gonna walk in there and tell them that. Right, right, right. right. So I stopped her and uh, I told her I'll do it. And I walked down there and I told my parents what, what was going on. Mm, wow. And like, so I know for me, when when I first found out that Christian had cancer, like the first thing that I did was I just pulled myself back out of the situation for a second because n normally we were already prepared for, you know, Christian getting his blood work done because throughout his first 14 months of his life, that's what it was. We were just getting his blood work, getting his blood work and everything was like fine. And mm -hmm. then that one day, and normally, like you said, like it take about 45 minutes and that one day, it took about two hours before the doctors came back in. And then the first thing I did was I pulled back and I just had to have this one-on-one -on -one with God. Like, it, it's me and you for a second because I need to know exactly what to do, like, to process it, you know, correctly. Do you feel that God puts you through all those situations, all the you know, the, the injuries to to mentally prepare you for what was going to happen and how he was going to produce your story? Yeah, but I couldn't see that initially. I was mad. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you straight yeah. up, I was mad. <laughs> I, I pulled myself away to, to talk to God, but it wasn't no, all right, God, what you want me to do? It was like, yo, how could you allow this to happen? Like, mm. I just gave my life to you two months before, and I get everything in my life ain't supposed to be peachy and cream, but Right. You ain't supposed to allow, you know, this to happen to my daughter. Because I remember, you know, when I first got baptized, um, the pastor had told me that things are going to get harder in my life because, you know, the devil sees me trying to give my life to God and he's going to try to interrupt that. But the the fruits of my life, my kids will be protected. Mm. So for this to happen to my daughter, it's just like, like, what are you doing? Like, I gave my life to you and now you're about to try to take yeah. My daughter's life. So I was angry. And a lot of people don't like to admit that they be angry with God, but I think I God is a big enough God to take your anger. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so initially I couldn't I couldn't see that. Uh I, my vision was blurry. It took me about two weeks to really allow it to settle in and you know, figure out the game plan of how we was gonna attack this. Yeah. So what were some of the things that you that you guys did in the hospital? For for us it was it was dance, you know, we danced every single day, which is how we connected. But, you know, what were some of the things that you were doing in the hospital to, you know, to keep her mind straight, to keep her positive and, and moving forward, knowing that she was gonna beat it? Yeah, so first of all, I didn't even tell her it was a hospital. Um, I told her when we initially started going that it was a, a hotel. It's a big <laughs> hotel that we yeah. was gonna be at for a long time. And uh, right. 
she was cool with it. Yeah. So I, I just left it at that. And then we would just watch movies. Um, we would dance, we would sing, we would go to the art room. We would try to do everything we possibly could to try to make it seem like it, it wasn't a hospital, to, to try not to allow, you know, that somberness of those hospitals to, you know, steal our joy. Because I, I think that our, our relationship that we had before she was diagnosed is what carried us through it because I tried to keep things as normal as possible um, with her. I didn't want it to shake up her life too much, but I wanted us to continue to have that relationship that we had. And I think that allowed us to remain strong during that time. Yeah, that's dope, man. That's dope. So but now you was you were still in the NFL and you going you're going back and forth from you know from camp or were you did you uh, I know I saw in the news that the Cincinnati Bengals were completely supportive of what was going on with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I didn't go. We still had mini camps and stuff going on, and I told the team that I wasn't coming back from that because I was contemplating retiring then because I'm like, I got my baby girl fighting for her life. It don't make no sense for me to, you know, go back to playing football when I'm going to be 500 miles from her when she needs me the most. Right. Um, but then the doctor came in a couple of days later after I had told my parents that I was thinking about retiring. Mm-hmm. And they were like, her treatment was going to be like over a million dollars. I signed a big contract. I didn't have a million dollars right, sitting right, in the right, bank right, like right, did right. in there. Yeah. Said that. And I definitely didn't have a million dollars to just give to, to medical bills. Right. Um, so after I reached out to my insurance, I found out that the our NFL coverage basically covered almost all of the cost of her treatment. So mm-hmm. I had to make the decision to go back to playing football because I wasn't vested yet. Vested right. means that you have to have three and a half uh, years in the NFL in order to maintain your um, health insurance when you're no longer playing the game. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that yet. So I had to go back to playing football so that I had the insurance to pay for her treatment. Wow. Wow. That, that must have been rough, man, because you got to fly, you know, almost halfway across the country and everything to go play ball, but then you got your daughter, you know what I'm saying? So mentally, you know, how, how did you overcome that? I used to cry the whole flight mm. back to Cincinnati. Mm. Like I would just sit in a corner with the window with my hood over um, my head, listening to some Kirk Franklin or Yolanda Adams, something yeah. to give me the strength to, you know, make it through that time that I was going to be away from her until I was able to fly back to Philadelphia. Yeah. But I was, I was mentally, I was all, I was all messed up mentally. Like there would be times I would be on a football field and I would just start crying. Mm. Like in the middle of a play, I would just start crying. It was like, man, I got 300 pound men. Uh, Hopefully I'm not trying to get double teamed and that's 600 pounds. And I got tears coming down my eyes because I'm thinking about, um, you know, being there with my daughter. It was just, it was hard to focus on football. Right. And then, of course, you don't really know what it's like to um, for a family to go through cancer unless you like walking in their shoes. Right. So although everybody was trying to be as supportive as possible, I think one of the things that's really missing um, from this world is emotional intelligence, like understanding mm-hmm. the emotions that people are going through. So. There were times, like I said, where I'd be out there crying. I'm not focused on playing uh, football. I would, you know, like I said, I have tears rolling down my eyes. And you know, a couple of times my defensive line coach would say things like, use that anger out on the football field. And it's like, anger? This ain't anger. Like, I'm sad. It ain't anger. Who, who <laughs> I, yeah, who am I going to be angry at? Like, this, right. this isn't anger. I, I'm sad. I'm hurt. I'm depressed. I'm not, I'm away from my daughter. So it was just hard um, right. not really having people understand what I was going through. But that's where, you know, Asha stepped in. And although she may not have understood completely what I was going through because Leah came from a previous relationship, she was there holding me down, you know, in times where, you know, I felt like I just couldn't take it anymore. Mm. That's Yeah, man, that's crazy, man. But now we we fast forward, right, years later and you was – you was been on every news station. Your story went viral. And what was the feeling like when Leah was now declared finally cancer free? It was it's it's it was mixed emotions. Like of course we were extremely happy yeah. that you know she's cancer free, but from the moment she was diagnosed with cancer, um, we always envisioned what that day would be like. 
you know, a big party, a big celebration, and then this quarantine hit. Mm. And then we couldn't celebrate the day the the way we wanted to. But like I said, we were blessed to make it to that day because we know a lot of, you know, families don't get it. Like, they don't make it to this day. Like, I run a foundation. I work with a lot of families. I understand, you know, what a lot of these families go through. But Leah was hurt. She cried because she wanted to have the gala. She wanted to celebrate with everybody who supported her the whole five years to that mark. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to celebrate some type of way, yeah. you know, when this quarantine is over. But like I said, me, I, I'm I'm forever grateful because I knew what could have happened if we didn't pull through this fight. Right. And now you mentioned the Still Strong Foundation. This experience that you that you guys went through has led you to now helping thousands of families, including mine, you know, mm-hmm. across the nation, you know, and that was that was the the motivation behind it, right? And how does it feel to just be able to help help families like in that situation? Yeah, I, to be honest with you, I knew that my family needed that foundation more. Mm. Um, because I believe that the only way that you're able to make it through adversity is if you have a reason why you have to make it through it. Like if you give a reason um, to your, your your challenge or your obstacle in your life. Like I always told myself uh, when Leah got diagnosed that she got diagnosed for a reason. And as I walked around the hospital that I spent time talking with families and I saw the financial hardships that family uh, families go through when they're diagnosed with cancer, I knew that I had a flat, uh, the platform to help out those families. But then I also understood that I had a purpose for my daughter's battle with cancer. Mm-hmm. And that if we started this foundation, if we use our platform, we're going to be able to help thousands of families out there, but we're also going to be able to help ourselves and give us a reason to keep fighting when we feel like giving up. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of times I felt like giving up, but I understood the message that it was sent to all those families who were battling cancer. Like, oh, he, they gave up when it got hard, so it's okay for us to give up. And I wasn't right. willing to give that message to other people. Mm-hmm. And I realized that if we would have gave up that, you know, we wouldn't have been able to support other families who were battling cancer. Yeah. And, and now you you guys are, you're you're doing well with, um, you have the motivational speaking. You also have a course out now, right? Yeah, I have, I have a lot of stuff going on right now. I have, yeah. um, I'm starting, like you said, I have a, a course out called Playmaker University. Mm-hmm. where I, I basically help people become playmakers in life. And, you mm-hmm. know, a playmaker is somebody who has the ability to change in sports, be able to change the game at any given time. And I want to be able to give people the tools to change their life, change the trajectory of their life at any given time, regardless of what they're going through on mentally, spiritually, and physically. Um, right. I also have, you know, the podcast with my wife, uh, the Relationships podcast that we took a break from, that we're about to start back up. Um, I have a nutrition a supplement line that I'm about to launch called uh, Rise Above Nutrition, which is basically going to be able to help people rise above whatever physical challenges that they're going through in their life. So we have a lot of stuff going on right now. And you just you got a whole we got a whole suite of yeah. stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Ready to ready to lay lay it out. Then your second half of 2020 looking like it's going to be nice. Got to. Got to, it got to finish stronger than it started because it, it caught everybody off. It caught everybody off, right? Yeah, man, like, you know, when we first hit the quarantine, man, I'm sitting here and I'm like, this can't be, like, real, real. And I'm going to be honest, I was one of those people like, okay, it's just in, in China or it, it's probably not going to hit here. And yeah. I wasn't even thinking about it until I started getting emails from my kid's school. And right. I'm like, oh, snap, like, this is... Like, this is a thing. Like, this is real. Mm-hmm. And it didn't hit me for real, for real, until I had four or five family members that actually came down with it that live up mm-hmm. in North Jersey because North Jersey and, and New York got hit pretty hard in the beginning. Right. And when I see my grandfather have it, and my grandfather beat it, and I had, you know, a couple other my family me- members that beat it as well, but I had one thing passed away from it. I'm sitting here, and I'm just like, man, yo, this is like – this is unreal, you know, what, what was your, what was the shift for you guys, you know, uh, throughout this pandemic to get through? No, I knew this thing was real. When I saw it, I knew it was, I didn't think that it was going to hit the way that it's hitting right now. Right. But I, I knew that if 
leadership didn't handle things the right way, the way that it could go. Um, and it's just sad to see the impact that it's having, um, not even on our country, but on the world, because there's a lot of people who are hurting right now. And it, the hardest thing about this is we don't know when it's going to end. Right. right. It's easy to say, okay, like you said with your, your son, um, y'all going to be in the hospital for 300 days. Right. So right then they're already telling you an end goal that you right. have, you know, work towards. Right. Same thing with Leah. They tell us it might take two years. Okay, so we know that we at least have two years, you know, to fight this thing. Right now, we don't know what's going on. Right. And, you know, as parents of, you know, kids who have underlying issues, I have to make decisions right now on, you know, whether Leah goes back to school or not. Yeah. Get homeschooled because it's not really clear what's going on and I already spent two years fighting for my daughter's life. I'm not about to put her life back in jeopardy. school. So it's a lot of tough decisions that a lot of people have to make right now. And, you know, maybe you don't have a kid who's battling um, any type of health issues, but then you don't know what you're going to do about your job. You don't want, you don't know what you're going to do about paying your bills. There's a lot of people right now that are just in limbo, not knowing what to do. Um, but my advice is to just take some type of action to move forward. Don't allow yourself to, to stay in limbo. One of the things that my wife told me as we sat down and we had to have a talk because, you know, those first two weeks of this of quarantine, you just sitting down, you eating because you're bored, you're not even hungry, you're just watching TV, watching movies, not doing anything. And we had to really sit down and like, look, we can't allow this to derail us. Like we had a lot of stuff going on before this quarantine hit, before this pandemic hit. We need to continue to move forward. We may not be able to move at the speed that we were doing it before this right. pandemic hit, but we can still take small steps forward. And she was like, her main goal is to make sure that she comes out of this pandemic better than she went in. So mm -hmm. that's why me and her have been on um, a physical challenge where we're trying to get back into shape because we want to make sure that when this thing is over that we don't come out the same person that we went in as because that's what it's going to hurt yeah. a lot more is to say look six seven eight months we didn't grow at all so right. just being able to take steps forward to you try to improve yourself in whatever way you can is pretty important yeah amen to that amen to that man listen everybody we got Devin still on the clutch vision podcast if you're listening to this on spotify apple or google podcast make sure you guys go ahead and give us a nice little review if you're watching this on youtube make sure you guys give us a nice little like and comment below share this with your mama your daddy your uncle your aunt i don't care who it is share with your step daughter dad so with everybody that needs to hear this podcast we got my man Devin still right now so listen bro we we going through not only are we going through the pandemic but let's get back a little bit and we're going through a lot of the social injustice that's hitting. And we've been going through this. Let's be honest. Like this ain't nothing new. This is being magnified, you know, even more, right? Mm -hmm. Now the conversation is, is truly open to, you know, to everyone to speak about this. And what do you feel has to at least spark somewhat of the change? I think what's, what needs to happen, a spark has already happened. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like anything happens uh, for no reason. I feel like we were sat down with this quarantine where people weren't able to go out and keep themselves busy. And they saw what happened to George Floyd. Like there was no getting away from it. Like yeah. we see this happen every single day. But you know, I heard a lot of people say who come from different cultures like, oh, turn that off. I don't want to watch that no more. We don't have the luxury to turn that type of stuff off. Right. We have to watch it because we have to show our kids what is happening to us out here. And this, this is our life, so we don't have the luxury to turn it off. But people really had to sit down and see what was going on. They had to see the experience of the African-American in this world, and there was no denying it. So I feel like the spark has already went off. Our job is to make sure that the flame doesn't go out, doesn't that go we don't out. allow other things to you know, continue to distract us, especially with sports coming back. Mm -hmm. there's a lot of mixed emotion with the sports coming back because now you give people a way to not focus on what was going on you give right. the media another thing to focus on which is the return of sports but I think that the athletes are going to do a good job of keeping 
what's going on in front of people's faces. But we just got to keep it going. Keep putting the pressure on, you know, the local politicians because those are the people who have the most power to change things that are directly around you. Um, of yeah. course, we got to go out there and vote for, you know, the federal positions, but the local people are the people going to have the most impact on your community. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, with the conversation being lifted, and like you said, we got to continue to press on because a lot of times what happens with when things arise and things are popular, everybody's on the bandwagon for like the first week, the first two weeks, and yeah. then media will sit there and probably try and shift it somewhere else and put the attention somewhere else and t- try to take the attention off of what was going on when we still have not solved the problem. Like this is not going to be a sprint. This is a marathon because at the end, this is what I was saying, bro. I was saying like, I feel like America, as far as from a police standpoint, there's a few things. Number one, I believe that the training has to be a little bit more extensive. That's just my personal opinion. Six months of police academy is not enough for you to judge whether somebody lives or dies. Right. Because if you look at it like this, right, it takes you, you know, years to become an NFL player. Like, to perfect your craft, to become a professional at that. Why shouldn't you do the same thing in order to become a police officer, right? Right. And then the second part is, is that from a psychological standpoint, I personally feel that um, that cops, listen, there are good cops, yes, but there's a lot of bad cops out there. And that's who we're addressing right now. Like, at the end of the day, they, they should be evaluated from a mental standpoint a little bit more frequently than they are because if you're going out into the street, if you're going out into the world, you got to be mentally stable to be dealing with people because a lot of a lot of your regular, not regular civilians, but there's civilians out there that ain't all the way there. You know what I'm saying? Right. And th- you dealing with that and then you, you're forced to make decisions and then you may not be in your right frame of mind coming off of that, going back into the office and then going back out into the field, you know what I'm saying? So just, you know, extend on that or whatever, what you feel, do you feel like they should, um, you know, press forward with more extensive training and um, uh, more evaluation from a psychological standpoint? Yeah, definitely. But I think that's the whole point of the the, defund the police movement. And I think a lot of people have it confused. They think is that it's get rid of the the police department and hold, but it's not true. What it's saying is, we're going to take some of that money that you're giving the police department and we're going to give it to organizations that are better equipped to handle those type of situations. Like you said, sometimes there's civilians out there who have mental issues that they're dealing with. You don't need to call the police to come handle them if they're, they're going through some type of episode, but right. you can call an organization that is better equipped to handle that type of scenario so that everybody can make it home because that's the point. The, being a policeman, Policewoman is a it's a dangerous job. We understand that. We understand that y'all have a family to make it home to, but we also have a family to make it home mm-hmm. to too. And it's not okay for you to take your six months of training and then go out into the field and then you already have a perception of what I am as a black man with tattoos or how the media perceives me to make a split second decision on whether or not I go home to my family or not. I think that there needs to be continuous training not just on how to shoot a firearm, but how to de-escalate a situation, how to bring everybody down to a level where, like I said, people can make it home. So it's going to take a lot of training. I think a lot of other organizations are going to have to, you know, step in and, you know, take some of that responsibility that the police uh, force had before. And then it's just going into communities. If the only times you go into our community is when you get a 911 call, that's a problem because then you don't know who we truly are as a people. Right. You see us as criminals. And furthermore, like, I've been having conversations with a lot of my friends. A lot of these guys, a lot of these cops, they're not actually from that community. Yeah, that's so the problem. That's the problem. Like, how are you going to go into the hood and you're not even from the hood, so you don't know exactly how to interact with, you know, with these people that live here on yeah. a day-to-day basis, and then you come in out of... That's like saying, you know, you ever... Uh, you go to school and then your teachers start yelling at you and you, you get the, well, you ain't my mom, you ain't my dad. Like, why are you talking to me like that? Like, that's yeah. exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it goes back to what I said to you before when I said that I was, you know, 
getting into a lot of trouble. Yeah. The first time I had a one-on-one interaction with a cop is when I was in fifth grade. And I was like, I had just got in trouble for like stealing a bike from school or something. Mm-hmm. And I had to go to the police station. And mind you, I told you I was getting, I didn't start really getting into trouble like that until my parents got divorced because I didn't really know how to let out what I was going through um, right. in my life. But I remember when the cop had fingerprinted me, he had put on gloves. And before he fingerprinted me, he was like, do you know why I'm putting on gloves? And I'm like, yeah, so that you don't get your fingerprint on the machine while you're trying to take mine. And he was like, nah, because I don't like touching criminals. And when he said that, it kind of <laughs> threw me off because it's like, I'm in fifth grade. So I would how old am I? Maybe 11 or something. Right. I'm in fifth grade and he's already telling me that I'm a criminal. Like that's what he saw me as. He didn't see me as a kid that was crying out for help. He didn't ask me what I was going through in my life. Why am I acting out? But he saw me as a criminal. And if I would allow that to, you know, sit in my mind yeah. as I was growing up, it could have really derailed me. Like, man, this man is already telling me I'm a criminal. I might as well go out here and be exactly that. But what I'm saying is that these police, they go into these communities and that's all they may see is a criminal. Yeah. They may not see people who feel oppressed, who don't know which direction to go through, who feel like they don't have nobody out there that cares about them or they don't have no hope. And for for them to have people policing communities that don't come from the community, it don't make any sense to me. Yeah, definitely, definitely not. So I, I do agree with you, you know, wholeheartedly on everything that you just said. I believe that, you know, putting the money towards other organizations um, is the way to go to help de-escalate certain situations and then you know, putting, putting the information out there to, um, you know, business owners and other people, like when you see something and you know exactly what it is, you don't have to, when you call 911, 911 should direct that situation to that, that particular organization, right. not necessarily the, the, the police, because then right. that's when everything goes down. And now look, look on what you got, you know what I'm saying? We got, we got, you know, black people dying in the streets. I'm not even mad at the protests, to be honest, you know what I'm saying? Because it's like, look, you, you this could have been avoided in so many different ways. Like at the end of the day, that man didn't have to have his knee on, on that on another man's neck for that yeah. long. Or or period. You know what I'm right. saying? He shouldn't even had it had it there, period, you know. So guys, this is what this is what we're talking about. This is what we're pushing. The conversation does not stop until we actually see real change and we're going to keep pressing so this is why we keep saying share these videos share this information and for you know for the white community this is valuable information for you guys as well too because although you may not be you know racist or anything like that some of you guys may feel that you want something you need something to do or you you want to push forward the conversation and you don't know exactly how to do that this is the type of information that we're talking about. We're talking about supporting this type of movement so that we can create real change, you know? So, Because yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it, it's, for me, it's crazy because yeah. it's like still you see people saying they don't believe racism is real, right? Yeah. They don't think that it's really real, but I feel like I, from the time, even my time at Penn State, just being in the media all the time, I've been able to be able to build a rapport with people. People have been able to see my true character, what I stand for, what are my value systems. And even now, I told my wife, I'm struggling right now seeing everything that's going on because, you know, I grew up in the hood. I live in the suburbs now, but I felt more protected when I was growing up in the hood because it was it was my norm. But it's like now when I walk out to the streets, I'm... I hug my wife, I kiss my wife, I kiss my daughters because you don't even know if you're going to make it home. Like, it, it does something to you as a black man. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, they talked about how the three cops in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, was fired because they was caught on the, the radio saying um, they wanted to go out there and kill some black people and mm-hmm. erase them about four or five generations. And it's like, how do you expect us as black men, black women, to go out there with the right mental, knowing that somebody is trying to erase your generation. People who are in power, people who have guns on their their sides, who can take your life in a blink of an eye. How are you supposed to handle everything that's going on when you know that there's people in that type of position that's willing 
to take you from your family. Right. Like this is the, it's not even like I'm, I'm not even scared. I'm not fearful. Yeah. But it just makes me more alarmed. And it's not a good position to be in where you walk out this door every single day, not knowing if you're going to make it home or not. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be real right here. I don't even think it's necessarily just a racist problem. I think people have a heart problem for real, for real. Like people have a real heart problem and we're believers. And I believe that the only way, the only real way to create real change is to change the matters of the heart. And a lot of times we look at things on the outside and we don't focus on what's, what's on the inside and what's on the inside needs to be transformed first. It's just like, you know, if you got a car issue, they're going to look at the engine, they're going to look under the hood, they're going to look inside and not going to look on the outside of the car. You know, anything that's like on the outside could probably be patched up and then it'll be fixed. But what's on the inside is what's more important because that's what's going to make the car go. So I feel like a lot of times we we sit here and we say racist and then it even on another level on from a biblical standpoint, we're all one race at the end of the day. So being racist towards one another, you know, honestly, it's kind of like an oxymoron in the sense when truly I feel like the, the word we should use more is, is more prejudice, but I get it. I get it. You know, like racist has been a word that's been, just been made up here, but it's like, we're, we're one race in, and it says that in, in the Bible, but we don't, but we don't understand that. We don't, um, not everybody conforms to that language. And, but, but it's, even though it's actually obvious and it's actually true. And I think that change doesn't necessarily start in the White House, change starts in your house, you know? That we have to learn how to start um, changing our children and this generation is the generation to make that, make that change, you know? And let me get your thoughts on, on this generation and how we can like push them forward to, to take the lead because they're the leaders of, of the next generation anyway. Yeah, but I think just to go off your analogy, Okay. Uh, the car and mm. you know having to check the engine to see what's going on or pop the hood what makes you take your car to the the mechanic in the first place your mm. check engine light goes off mm. so first of all the car has to know that something's wrong with it for in order for you to take it True. so a light has to go off in people's head to say man i might not be racist but maybe something's wrong with my ideology maybe something wrong with the things that i was taught maybe i can you know, hopefully talk to a person of another color, get their experience with their life, take that back, teach my family, teach right. my friends, because that's the only way you're going to change. You can't right. make somebody change if they don't realize something's going wrong. Right. They ain't going to take their car to the mechanic because they're going to think that everything's good with the car until everything blows up. And that's what everything is happening right now. Right. Right. People are tired because they that light been coming on. You've been ignoring it. You've been telling yourself, I got a couple yeah. more miles. Yeah. I got another trip. Yeah. Yeah. Now they're saying no. There's no more trips. Y'all are going to hear what's going on, or right. we're going to make y'all here. Right. So and, 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 to, and to your point, this is why I've been saying this as well. The early intervention is necessary because the future of the children now, especially in the white community, they need early intervention to know so mm -hmm. they don't grow up and thinking that everything is is okay and it may not be okay. The mm -hmm. only way to change that is to have that early intervention and in showing, you know, the other nationalities, other ethnicities on what is the real deal. Let's stop teaching, you know, the garbage. Let's stop teaching the, the stuff or whatever that's that that they want that they want to teach you. Let's start teaching real life, real history, not just in schools, but just in the home as well, too. So I think that parents have to take the initiative and hold each other accountable to also start having those uncomfortable conversations. But it's not even going to be the parents who are going to provoke those conversations. It's going to be the kids. Because the one thing that social media has allowed people to do is to connect from all different cultures right. and backgrounds. No longer do you only able to learn about other cultures from what the media decides to show you on TV. You can connect with people all over the world from Instagram, from Twitter, from Facebook. So I think that's going to be the key to really bridge the gap and say, man, Okay, because this, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm not going to tell you who the player is, right? Mm -hmm. But when I came to the Texans, I, I went to work out with my teammates, my new teammates before. And when we were sitting on a bus, um, one of the white players 
had got up and was telling his story, he was like, I don't even know how we got on this topic, but he was like, the first time I saw a black person was when I went to college and I got robbed by him. Mm. And I'm like, come on, man. Like this, this is fitting the, the stereotype that, you know, the media portrays everybody. I'm pretty sure the first time you met a black person, you didn't get robbed by the black person. But this is the type of stuff that's being put out into this world. But what I think that is gonna really change the way that the media perceives African-Americans in this country is that you're able to connect with people all over the world. Like I said, and you can come to my page and say, no, we're not all criminals. We're not all out there just yeah. doing harm to other people. So you be, you're able to see the real us and then you're able to go back and have those conversations with your parents. And that's something I've been seeing in a lot of videos that's been on social media is kids starting those conversations with their parents say, hey, they're not like the way that you try to say that they are, but right. they're better than that. Right. There it is, man. There it is. Ladies and gentlemen, my man Devin still has been laying down the law on the Clutch Vision <laughs> podcast. We got one more thing to do. You know, um, one more question. You know, throughout this pandemic, throughout, you know, 2020, everything has been going crazy. What type of motivation do you give to the rest of the world, if all 7 billion people were listening to you right now, what's the plays that they need to make in order to get through the rest of 2020? And just to try to control the controllables. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of things that are out of our control right now, but there are some things that are, that are in our control. And we need to put the focus on those areas of our life and try to maximize those areas as much as possible. You know, one of the things that I decided to do soon as this pandemic hit was to go back to school. Um, so I went back to school at the University of Pennsylvania to get certified in applied positive psychology because I know during this time, a lot of people are hurting right now. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to just go out here and be somebody that's just talking, just to talk, just trying to motivate people. But I want to actually give people tools and resources that, that they can use in order to become the best version of themselves, in order to experience subjective well-being in our life. So that's one of the things that I decided to take control of in my life during this time, during this pandemic. So just look at areas in your life where you're able to focus on right now and then just maximize it. Go as hard as possible in those areas. Dope, brother. Dope, dope, dope. Listen, we got one more thing to do, man. We're going to play a little game. That's cool? Yeah. All right, cool. So we're going to play this game. It's called In The Clutch. I'm Kenny Clutch, and that's In The Clutch. And you guys might hear Christian coming down soon. But we're going to play this game called In The Clutch. In The Clutch, I-N-D-A-C-L-U-T-C-H, stands for Inspirational Dancers Creatively Linking Upon the Culture of Hip-Hop. So, Dev, I'm going to give you one letter, and you give me a positive word to go with that letter. Cool? Yeah, let's do it. All right, here we go. C. Um... This this a time? <laughs> nah, <laughs> but we will, but we kind of want to rapid fire though. <laughs> uh, and you said for inspiration. Yeah, uh, anything positive, anything positive. Um, culture. There you go. Okay. L. Love. Everybody says that. U. U. Uniqueness. Okay. T. Uh, time. C again. C, care. H. Um, honesty. There it is. There it is. There it is. There it is. My man, Devin, still in the building. Listen, big boy, let everybody know, you know, where can they find you at? Uh, you, you can find me. I mostly hang out on Instagram. You can find me at Still in the Game. Um, Facebook, Still in the Game, Devin Still. Twitter, Dev underscore Still 71. Awesome, man. Listen, everybody, make sure you guys sign up for the Shift Makers Virtual Motivation Conference that is going down July 25th on Crowdcast. You can go to my website, www.kennyclutchspeaks.com. Go ahead and get your tickets. We're there to motivate you and push you through the rest of 2020. Make sure that you guys share this with your mama, your daddy, your uncle, your auntie, your grandma, your grandpa. Share it with your stepdaughter, your stepdad, your stepdog, your stepcat. I don't care who it is. Make sure you share with them and make sure they go ahead and get some positivity in their life. If you're watching this on YouTube, make sure you give us a like and a thumbs up and a comment below. If you're watching this on Spotify, 
Apple or Google, make sure you guys go ahead and give us a great, great review. Like we say all the time, when we change the mind, we change the game. Yesterday is gone. Tomorrow we'll worry about itself. And today is all we have. And if today is all we have, make sure you impact today the best way you know how. It's your boy Kenny Clutch and the Clutch Podcast. I'll check y'all later. Peace.